This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Disability is often described as a tragedy, a crisis, or an aberration, even though one in five people worldwide have or will have a disability. Why is this common human experience rendered exceptional? Disability studies scholar Jennifer Natalia Fink argues that this originates in our families. Weaving together stories of members of her own family with socio-historical research, in her latest book, All Our Families, Jennifer illustrates how the eradication of disabled people from family narratives is rooted in racist, misogynistic, and anti-Semitic sorting systems inherited from Nazis. Inspired by queer and critical race theory, Jennifer calls for a lineage of disability, a reclamation of disability as a history, a culture, and an identity. In this episode, autistic mestiza, critical educator, and disability studies scholar activist Sara M. Acevedo joins Jennifer for a conversation that challenges us to reconnect disability within the family as a means of repair toward a more inclusive and flexible structure of care and community. This episode was recorded during a live online event on April 7th, 2022. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. pleasure to be back in the space, although remotely. I do miss CIS. I do miss San Francisco. I do miss the Bay Area and its vibrant um, activist culture, especially around disability justice. Um, So thank you so much for inviting me back. I'm so, so delighted to be in conversation with Jennifer today. Um, Her book is fantastic, totally transformational. Um, It especially spoke to me um, because I am an autistic person. Um, but we will get uh, more into that after um, some introductions and if descriptions, personal descriptions, and some land acknowledgements. Um, I'll start by um, describing myself. Um, I am a um, woman of a very pale skin, um, mestiza heritage. Um, I have curly hair, short to the chin. Um, I'm wearing a blue, well, you, I don't know if you can, you can appreciate it, but it's blue um, and it's buttoned down and I'm wearing um, a gold necklace and I have big brown eyes and um, I have a little bit of a purple lipstick. And um, okay, so with that, I'm going to um, read the land acknowledgement for Miami University, which is where I teach, is located in Oxford, Ohio. Miami University is located within the traditional homelands of the Miami and Suwannee people, who along with other indigenous groups ceded these lands to the United States in the first Treaty of Greenville in, in 1795. The Miami people, Whose name of our university, whose name our university carries, were forcibly removed from these homelands in 1846. Despite centuries of colonization, the Miami people preserve a deep connection to this land and are engaged in a vibrant resurgence of their heritage, language, and culture. Thank you, Jennifer. Please, it's our pleasure to welcome you today. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction. And thank all of you for coming tonight amidst war, COVID, and all the rest. Happy Thursday. We're slouching towards Friday. We're almost there on the East Coast. You've got a little more time. 
Uh, I'm Jennifer Natalia Fink, she, her, hers pronouns. I'm a white middle-aged woman in a red shirt with black curly hair, shoulder length, and a gray background of a lake behind me. Um, welcome everybody. I'm so delighted to be here this evening to share all our family's disability lineage and the future of kinship with you and to be in conversation with a truly brilliant thinker and writer, Sara M. Acevedo. I am coming to you live from unceded Piscataway Nkachong territory in glamorous Gaithersburg, Maryland. And I encourage you, if you're on this call, to take just a second, it takes 30 seconds or less, to Google whose territory you are on. Put in the Google box, whose territory am I on? Five seconds and you know. And now you can't unknow that, right? Now, I have to say, I kind of hate it personally when some white lady in, let's just say, like a bright red shirt gets up and makes this kind of virtue signaling proclamation without action. So let's turn this statement of fact into a call to action, a call to restorative justice for Nakachak, Piscataway, and all BIPOC people. And I invite you to join me, lead me, meet me in that work. Um, one first step that was mentioned was nativegov.org. Um, if you're on Piscataway, you can learn more about the Piscataway people in the present, uh, piscatawaytribe.org. Um, and a really good resource for action items is narf.org. Um, and I'd love to hear if people have other ideas about this, including Sada. Um, I do have some thank yous. Thanks to Joanna Green, my editor at Beacon, as well as Priyanka Ray, Christian Coleman, Allison Rodriguez, and the whole Beacon team. Thanks to Amanda Ennis, my agent at Trident Media, who helped me turn what was a glimmer of an idea into a book. And thank you to the CIIS team, especially Emlyn and Alex, for their hard work making this event happen. Um, and thanks to Sada. M. Acevedo, again, for her brilliant interlocution tonight. Thank you, Sarah. Thank um, you, Jennifer. And then I just want to thank all my families, just like the title says, especially my daughter, Nadia, who is the joy and center of my life and who might bust in here any minute. Ooh, there's the book. Yay. And Sarah Sohn, my partner in parenting and more. And then I'm going to thank my ancestors. Um, thanks to Rona and cousin XY, Grandma Adina. Shayla Lewis, and all our disabled kin. Sikrona Livraka, let their memory be a blessing, let their memory be a revolution. Um, I'm going to read, if it's okay, Sarah, just the first, to, because Sarah's read the book, I wrote the book, but you guys probably haven't read the book because it came out like three seconds ago. So I'm just going <laughs> to read a teeny bit just so you um, get what the setup is and this, there's a story. So I'm gonna tell you a story, okay? Um, it's quick. I'm seven. I'm walking through room after room in my grandparents' cavernous Long Island house, looking for my cousin. Cousin, cousin, I call, wishing I knew his name. Cousin XY, I call, I know he's a boy. And I'm a geneticist's daughter. Chromosomes count. Cousin XY visits me in my dreams. He has his father's eyes. My cousin XY, as I called him, was born in 1972 with Down syndrome and immediately abandoned. He was listed only as baby XY. I always knew my aunt and uncle had, quote, given away their son at birth. His very existence was explained to me as a tragedy, a crisis, an aberration that perhaps science could one day prevent. In the hospital on the day he was born, his mother refused to look at his face, take him away. So goes the family story. His, my grandfather, a family doctor, the family medical expert was firm. Give him up, you can start over. You have a right to real children. He'll be happier there. Where was there? I often wondered where my cousin was, who he was. 
Silence and neurotypical children quickly replaced him in the family narrative. On the rare occasions when his existence came up, everyone gave them away was repeated as gospel truth. And indeed in the 1970s, institutionalization, abandonment and excision from the family narrative was still too often the fate of those labeled incurable at birth. But I discovered that was not the whole truth. As with most families, probably yours, the story of my family's disability lineage had far more strands than I realized. In 2017, when I was visiting a far-flung branch of my family in Manchester, UK, I discovered that there was another cousin in my family with Down syndrome, also on my father's side, buried in plain sight, Rona. Born in Scotland in 1946, two decades before Cousin XY, Rona lived in apparent happiness, first with her nuclear family in Glasgow, and then in a group home called Cosgrove, which her mother helped found for disabled Jewish people. True to her name, Rona means joy in Hebrew. She lived a joyous Jewish life. So two of my family members have been written out of the family story, delineated from our lineage. I mourned what I had never had, both a lived relationship with my cousins and a family myth that could include them. I wondered how the knowledge of a rich, deep history of disability in my family would have changed my experience of my own daughter's diagnosis at age two as a disabled, non-speaking autistic person. If I had grown up playing with cousin XY, would we have experienced her disability as part of the warp and woof of our lineage instead of as a personal disaster, rending us from the fabric of the family? And in the book I talk about, you know, that trauma and, and where I think it came from. Those were the questions that led me to think about disability lineage and what the implications of repressing, hiding, finding, and celebrating it might be for disabled people and their families everywhere. By cutting me off from knowledge of my disabled cousins, I had no source of disability knowledge and history and wisdom in my family. Their lives were treated as extraordinary, disposable, and traumatic, so traumatic that the very fact of them was hidden, erased from the story our family told about itself. Now, this is typical of how disability is narrated in the family myths passed down from one generation to another. Disability is erased, repressed, covered over. Families delineate, destroy the connection between generations of disabled people, their families, and their caretakers. Our disabled kin are not merely misrepresented. They are written out of the story. By examining the ways families excise disability from their stories, I began to see how disability is fundamentally shaped by this omission. The way we assign meanings to bodies and minds, establish norms, otherize and stigmatize according to perceptions of mobility is inseparable from how we name and claim our kin. Family is defined and produced by eradicating disability lineage, often making the inevitable appearance of disability within a given family a crisis, a trauma to be erased, effaced, unwritten. I refer to this process as delineation, the separation of dis disabled people from their lineage. Now, this is what's interesting. The word delineate literally means to mark off with lines and thus separate, right? But it includes the word lineage, derived from lineage, family ancestry. So the delineation I'm examining here is sometimes literal with the institutionalization of my cousin. It is sometimes rhetorical, as with the suppression of cousin Rona and her disability from the family narrative. But here's the really interesting thing. Delineate also means to describe, right, or portray a form of inclusion. 
So within the word itself lies the potential to relineate, to sew a family member back into the fold, to describe, portray, and thus connect. And that's what I explore in this book. I'll stop there for now. Um, thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, my service dog, Coco, has decided to join us. And it's really, really heavy. He's so heavy. And oh, he's he really so cute. <laughs> oh, and it was, um, it's, it's really, really um, emotional to um, just hear you read it. Because I've spent so much time with this book in the past few weeks. Um, but it just, it just um, acquires a different quality. Um, different affect when I hear you read it and it's so emotional just because it's I feel it so deeply as a disabled person so I often you know while reading it I often wondered I I I, I just wonder the differences you know in in readership what why what did non-disabled people would feel when they read it and and how different an affect it is for a disabled person not not to separate us but just simply to to um to expand upon how how deeply rooted these histories are um within our kin our disabled kin um as a shade a cafe uh names it our crib kin um so thank you, thank you. It's really, really touched me very deeply. <laughs> and, and with that, I would like to ask you some questions and get more deeply into this conversation with you. So the first question I have, and I have context for all the questions. I've always been fascinated by words. Um, I am a trained linguist. So it comes as no surprise that this aspect of the book immediately caught my attention. Delineation, lineation, lineage, relineate. Um, so one of the most remarkable ideas you explore concerns the term delineation, which as you explain, carries within itself a history of oppression and a potential for liberation in what concerns disability lineage and family narrative. Could you please expand upon this? Yeah, definitely. And and thank you for sharing with me that this, you know, touched you. That's uh, my greatest wish it really is, is um, for people to feel seen, especially disabled people in, who, you know, experience this in their families. Um, so, you know, as I said in the introduction, delineate has this doubleness, this tension in the word itself, which is sort of why I focalize a lot with it, because it's to cut out, mark, separate, but it's also to call in, right? Um, and even that that demarcation separation uh, has has two aspects of it. Um, the first thing I'm really calling on all of us to do is to assume we always were there. There always were disabled people in all of our lineages. And I was really struck by uh, Stacy Melbourne um, and others who talk about sort of calling out to an ancestral, like a mythic ancestral plane, but they always start by saying there were no disabled people ever in my family. I thought that's not true. You've been, you've been denied that knowledge, um, which doesn't mean we need, don't need like a more spiritual calling out, but, but we also need to know. Um, and, and even if it's a little unknowable, say I'm adopted or there was so much silence and now everybody's dead or whatever, just the act of performatively saying, I believe there were disabled people in my family before me. I know that to be true. Um, even if I can't, you know, trace all of them. Um, I think that changes something. So that's, that's one piece of it. It's just assuming people existed before us, um, right? 
we were here before. So that's one piece of it. And, and actually finding them is sometimes easier than you'd imagine. And I, by finding cousin X, Y, I found this other cousin, you know, one thing leads to another. Once you're out about something, once you're talking about it, it's amazing how that works. Um, and I even have tips in the appendix about like, how do you yeah. do that? So there's that there's the practical piece, but there's also sort of the deeper piece of just what would it mean if we didn't say there were no disabled people in my family? What if we said there were? Um, right. So that's one piece of it, that reimagining, that relineating um, with my cousin's story. Right. Um, then the other piece that I talk about, about my mom and my grandmother, um, just there are people in our family who aren't cut out, who do have disabilities, that there's a lot of toxic shame and stigma about talking about it explicitly. This is especially true with mental disabilities. Um, this is sometimes true with autism. This is sometimes, you know, um, and they're not even necessarily invisible disabilities. My grandmother, her life was profoundly shaped uh, by her deafness, and it was unspeakable in my family. So so when we reimagine our disability lineage, um, we also revalue and rethink um, the people in our family who were disabled but didn't claim that as an identity. I say, my grandmother, I can still see the look on her face. She was very phobic about disability and especially about disabled children. She got this look mm. of disgust, right? Um, which she maybe felt about herself. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So. But I can claim her as an ancestor. She's passed. Yeah. Um, and I talk about my ring that I'm not giving you the finger uh, that I wear on my ring finger that's hers. Um, th so I think it's it's not all um, cuddly and warm reclaiming. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm also, you know, coming to terms with that ableism of my grandmother um, and my mother to some degree, right? Uh, but we can revalue it. We can resignify it. We, we can change what it means. Um, so the stigma and shame are so great that we never acknowledge the disability in some cases. Um, I'm obsessed with cloth and fabric and sewing and, and sort of thinking of this as like we're sewing this ancestral cloth that we can wrap ourselves around and hand down to the next generation. Um, so I think that's sort of how I'm thinking about the complexity of this reaching back into the into an unknown past, re-signifying, making a new meaning out of what we do know, right? Mm -hmm. Valuing it to sew it into a cloth that in my case, I have a daughter with a disability that I can make it usable for her um, and see her as part of something rather than this, you know, trauma cut out of the family cloth yeah. to see her in that lineage is super important to me. Um, and I use Jewish ritual. Um, it was funny. I wrote this thing for the New York times. And I said, I prayed to my deaf grandmother and they were like, don't you pray to God? I said, no, no, <laughs> no, I don't. I do pray. And it's in there like, what, what? But so for me, the spirituality is in that connection and making that usable for my daughter and for my family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating because of all the things you said just now, I, I was making myself so many connections to other things, of course, in your book, um, but of course, through my own uh, reading and my own interpretations and the things that, of course, resonated for me in my own family lineages. Um, and uh, when you're when you're talking about you, you know, it's not that you didn't have disabled ancestors, it's that you were denied that history, that part of your history. Uh, I immediately connected it uh, with the part where you're talking about um, genes. And when you're talking about uh, Steve Silverin and neurotribes and uh, discussing, um, you know, neurodivergence and genes and how old these genes are. And, you know, just, just thinking about how I was denied of that history, not by my family, because my family didn't even know 
by by the systems the the, the racialized gendered class systems that the fascist systems that deny people like me an autism diagnosis because we do not conform to a textbook delineation demarcation of what autism is supposed to be according to those histories of fascism coming from uh, Asperger's to others who have, of course, before them, before him and after. Um, and so that just really made me think about how it's, 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 it's within our families, but it expands into our cultural families, our cultural kin. So that was something that was just thinking about the fact that these genes are old just kind of make me feel like part of that old gene family of my autistic kin um, through genes. And it just felt good. <laughs> um, so often that the, all that genetic discourse is used to do is genocidal, right? Is exactly. It, you know, abort, institutionalize yes. people from having children. But yeah. The testing, but but it doesn't have to be. It can be. I don't see science as the enemy. These are tools we can use them any way we want. Um, so that could be, you know, finding your heritage as as an autistic person, right, and valuing it. Um, and exactly. Diagnosis doesn't have to be delineating. It could be finding your people and tribe, and that that's something I talk about in the book. My daughter. Uh, you know, I was like, I think she's autistic. And the doctor said to me, I see a perfectly normal child and a very neurotic mother. Um, of course, six months later, she had the diagnosis, you know, because she made good eye contact and mm -hmm. it, the, the, you know, male defined idea of what an autistic kid looks like. Right. Um, so, so I, I think, um, the, the cultural piece is huge. And part of what I, a couple things. First, my, my greatest hope for this book is not that my family, you know, it's not because we're so screwed up that I want to tell the story. You know? <laughs> um, we're, we're just one family, right? But what I hope is really everybody, whether they identify as disabled or not, when they read the book, say, huh, I wonder what my disability lineage was. How yeah. could that help me? How could that help my family, right? Uh, how could that empower us? And the other piece of it is the thing that nobody did when my kid was diagnosed was say, you're now part of a community. Yes. Find your people for your daughter. She needs to find her people. And you as a family need to find a larger family. It was all, this is an individual problem to be solved. One doctor said, you know, I'm sure you're upset and, you know, get over it because now you have to fight for your kid, you know. Uh, fight for what? What was I fighting? What was this war I was supposed to be in? And uh, nobody says, find your people. This is an identity. This is a community, right? It's just this medicalized individual problem to isolate you. And I, I think that's uh, such a travesty. <laughs> um, you it really know? is. Yeah, it really is. I'm, I'm, I myself, writing, I'm writing right now about autistic activism through the analytic of contagion. Oh, wow. To... Precisely because of this whole, you know, like power reversal, like utilizing this uh, idea of contagion as a biological, viral, you know, medical um, um, unit to then transfer that into cultural contagion and how we are pushed into those fringes because we fight medicalization. And so it, it just, my approach to, to, to your uh, analysis of genes is for the first time, I think positive because I'm so used to encountering people who are so happily telling me that they're, that, that, that they're still, you know, this is obviously dated, but people talking about the autism gene and finding the autism gene amongst my colleagues, you know, not my direct colleagues, but people that I encounter in academia wanting to discover oh, yeah. the autism gene 
to eradicate it before they, they don't even know I'm autistic. So I, I always have this really gut react, bat, bat reaction to the, the whole idea of genes. So this time it was a different refiguration, a different idea of it, like what you speak of with the osmotanchis that just regain a different um, form and thus affect for me. So it's not, I don't have as much aversion to it because I know mm. it can be reimagined. Oh, um, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I think, you know, too often there's this false binary, like you're anti-science if you want yes. to this yes. sort of genocidal narrative, but there's yes. nothing to, you know, and the problem is, and, and Rosemary Garland Thompson has been very good about this, you know, like, Who's doing this research and with what agenda? You know, if if disabled people aren't included in that conversation, right? Um, then the 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 research aims to eradicate, delineate, destroy, murder. You know, uh, and I think it's so important that we're inside that conversation and not just subjected to these tools and and see them as as you know community building potentially in some way absolutely yeah people use ancestry.com to find their lost kin and their lost heritage and their ethnicity and like oh i'm part black or i'm part this and i'm part that i think the same thing like this could be used uh productively for disabled people not to pathologize or delineate, but but to call in to find the cousin or the, the heritage um, potentially. So so I think that's that's a piece of it that I really because my dad's a geneticist and mm-hmm. born into this science discourse that was so toxic and phobic in so many ways. Um, and also as a queer person, I saw much yeah. of the same discourse around queerness, especially in the yeah. 90s, let's find the gay gene so we can get rid mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to, so that we understand ourselves better and connect more deeply, right? Um, yes. So I, th- I think that, that uh, is is really important to me to not uh, to kind of not leave science to um, a genocidal ableist. Of course, project, you of know. course, a reclamation, a reclamation yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, well, it's clear that you and I could spend hours and <laughs> hours talking about this, but uh, we're getting time checks, so I think we okay. have to move on. <laughs> sure. Okay. So. Moving on to my next question. Okay, so here's my context. You touch on the inextricable link between the social relations that construct care as a burden and the physical, both the physical and rhetorical delineation of disability from the normative family narrative, which is just mentioned in the introduction, speaking of both institutionalization and um, Uh, rhetorical delineation. So my question is, could you please discuss the implications of race, class, disability, of course, and gender in the construction of care as a burden? And I'm referring to care labor here. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I'm going to start with a personal admission that's a little like embarrassing to me. So uh, when I was pregnant, it was very hard for me to get pregnant. Um, It took me years. And uh, there was still in 2007, the, you know, do you want a boy or a girl? Right. Uh And I actually wanted a girl. (laughs) Uh, But you weren't allowed to say that right? What you were supposed to say, that's the question. What is the answer? Everyone knows it. As long as it's healthy. Oh yeah. Right. That's the correct response. So when I was thinking about all of this, I start there in unpacking race, gender, colonialism, all of it, because what's happened is we're really dishonest about care labor in this country. Um, when my mother had me, she wanted a boy and had no shame in saying it or telling me, um, she's apologized since, right? That was the norm. Of course you wanted a boy. Why would you want a girl when all the girls do is care for other people? 
All they do is care labor, right? The truth is girls, girls do other things now and women do other things, but women do like almost a hundred percent. To be a woman is to care, to care is to be a woman in uncompensated, unvalued ways. So I was very scared of having a child with a disability. I didn't quite, I wouldn't have said it that way. You know, like I had all these layers of denial, but um, I bargained with the universe and said, uh, it's fine if I have a boy, even though I really want a girl, as long as it's healthy, you know? Uh And by healthy, I meant non What is healthy? You know, if the baby gets, all babies get are sick, like anyone who has a child out there knows, they're just like sick all the time. Um, 0.5% of disabilities are diagnosed at birth uh, by age 60, 40% of all people have disabilities, okay? okay. So okay. this fantasy, this is a fantasy with many layers, right? It's a displacement because we, we're not honest about gender and care labor. It's displacement. Uh, it's on the backs of disabled people. We say it's we're going to pretend that we don't care about gender. We care a lot about gender because gender organizes everything in the society, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but say as long as it's healthy, right? Well, there are no its. First of all, um, non-binary people are not its. Nobody's an it. Um, Right. And what are we saying there? We're saying we don't accept a disabled person. That's totally socially acceptable to say. Yeah. In a way saying I want a girl was not. So I went back and unpacked that and then went into there's tons, you know, people far smarter than me. Um, Asian food, like, like lots of people have done a lot of work on sort of the global economy uh-huh. um, of care work that really started in in. Um, pearls of slavery, where Black women did the care labor, were the wet nurses, and it was not, even in from Reconstruction on, um, it is not viewed as work. It is part of the condition of being a Black woman. Absolutely. begin in this country um, with our notions of care. Now it moves to um, a global economy of underpaid women of color um, from the global South, from South Asia, um, who this is the only way for them to get access to uh, citizenship, to all kinds of things, right? So it's compelled, essentially. Compelled, underpaid, still not viewed as work, right? so I, I, there's lots of work on this, but I really wanted to connect that to sort of, you know, I'm a white Jewish upper middle class woman, you know, that the, there, there are a bunch of fears here for white women about being deprofessionalized by a disabled child, mm-hmm. that you'd be thrown back into this role. Right. 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 Um, and then for women of color, even some white working class women, um, what happens is you don't not get deprofessionalized, you end up in, in poverty, right? Because of the lack yeah. of a care system. Yeah. So the, the, and so I was sort of trying to connect these, this whole system. Um, in all cases, the care is a problem to be solved by an individual in our culture. Mm-hmm. And the disabled person is essentially blamed for it. Exactly. You know? So I, I think that, and I saw that when I looked at the research in, in, in across the board. Um, and then I came back to my own experience of um, going to these support groups for parents of kids with disabilities that were for parents. But again, the insane dishonesty, it just, it drives me nuts. Parent groups with not a single male person, with not a single father, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. And we'd be like the only couple, you know. Um, so I and think that's normalized too. Totally like normalized, right? Um, so, so the, this and these are you know educated, affluent, liberal people, you know, like right. So I think there's just incredible dishonesty around this uh, about the gendering of care, the devaluing of care the lack of any recognition that there could be pleasure in care, right? Or the sharing of it. And it's inevitability, again, 
right? We're all going to need care at some point in the life cycle. And then I also saw this, honestly, in disability justice communities in mutual oh, aid that, you know, I felt very scared to say it a lot. I felt like I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know, you're not supposed to say, but what I saw was these are young people uh, who do not have, are not doing elder care, do not have children. There's no space for that in, in this conversation. Um, so I, I think we need to connect some of these resources so that we can sort of begin to think beyond the fantasies of even mutuality is not always possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody will have high care needs at some point in their life if they should live so long. Um, and that this cannot be this silent feminization, you know, that, 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 that then leads to a kind of fear and pathologizing and delineation of disabled people um, until we get honest about that. And I don't have all the answers, you know, since people are like, so fix it. (laughs) You know, there's smarter people than I who do have good ideas about that. But the piece, this delineation is connected to these fears um, of women being thrown back into this role without social supports. And uh, some of the mutual aid stuff is really operating on a phantasmatic level, really, about what, what real care work Absolutely. In in a sustainable way, accessible for everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and what what you mentioned about this this idea of deprofessionalization, which is a a, a real fear, um, it's it's also reinvented within the profession because we are performing care and emotional labor within our professions. Like I have to speak as a disabled um, mestiza immigrant person, how much care and emotional labor I have to perform in the academy? Mm-hmm. How much is left to me to, uh, to uh, lead DIE initiatives? to um, DEI initiative, sorry, to not, not, not expected, but to how can I not support a student who is minoritized and is struggling? How can I not resonate with an other colleague who is going through the same? How can I not be a part of that lineage? And so it is reproduced within the family and then out we are doing the same thing in our profession. Absolutely. It's a matrix that is just, and you said it very well, yes, gender is actually a structuring element in our society, in our very patriarchal, cis-heteropatriarchal society. So that's why, uh, and as Sylvia Federici, another uh, neo-Marxist, Feminists, feminist, uh, autonomous feminists have have uh, discussed it so well. Um, this is why the persecution started so early. Yes, before because, child was even born, we're saying exactly. don't be disabled. Don't you dare be disabled. You exactly. know, um, and you know it's understandable in one way because of not not understood like okay, but but. Uh, the the fear of being deprofessionalized of you know for uh, black women uh, who have sons who are autistic it's it's like yes. eight yes. times more likely to be uh, yes. targets of police violence you know like, exactly. like that's real man you know mm-hmm. um, so mm-hmm. I I think but but the the dishonesty is what drives me crazy because we can't really approach this. Um, and, and there is something in academia of sort of, I've heard this discourse of that sort of like, um, women and femmes do all this labor. And it's sort of eternalized in some way. And it's something yeah. I'm as a queer person, I'm, you know, and then I see like, 
queer people like disidentify with that role, but it's it's not really about identifying with or against it. It's about changing the structure. And that's why, you know, I want to get beyond kind of the identitarian way of talking about this that I uh-huh. was in some way. I was like, well, I have an egalitarian partnership with a woman. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to be stuck in this yes. horrible role, you know, um, but, but it's not really about individual, you know, exactly. it really the systemic way. Um, and it's not about disidentifying with mm-hmm. being like this, this, you know, dish rag woman who cares for everybody, you know, yeah. <laughs> or they're embracing that, you know, I see that in academia as well like there's sort of these these two moves like well you know I don't identify with being female or femininity so I'm not going to be in that role or I over identify I'm going to embrace yes. that and be like yes. that professor who every you know and never do my research or you know there's that binary it it, it you're screwed either way if you're, you're screwed either that's exactly <laughs> what I was saying had before you're screwed either way <laughs> yeah so we have to really be honest about that and look at who's not doing care work, which, and I, I you know, I, it's not like I hate men. I hate inequality. No. Yes, and same. men do not do care work full stop. No, they do they not. Rarely do. They are treated like heroes. And, you know, so, so that, that just has to be exposed and, and yeah. remediated essentially. Yeah. Oh, Okay, so much, so much to think about. Um, okay, where is this other question that I really wanted to discuss with you? Yes. Um, all our families envisioned heavily policed public spaces, aside ripe or prime for divergent expression and cultural reclamation, particularly for raised and gendered body minds. As you trace your own family lineage, you imagine a relineation of disability experiences dislocated from their family narratives into collective kinship systems wherein disability becomes radically visible. Finally, you position disability justice activism as the basis of this reparative relineation. Could you please unpack the intricacies of this process? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. And that's (laughs) a a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for so clearly articulating sort of, you know, the heart of the book in a lot of ways. Um, So I think the core thing that's sort of the starting place for that is really teasing out this binary between the public and the private. Uh-huh. This, like the family is this private space, right? And, and then there's the public space. Um, and part, I, I get into this around um, Melissa Blake and, and the, the Meet Your New Teacher TikTok challenge, which is this terrific <laughs> ableist disaster using a disabled, oh a visibly disabled woman's appearance and saying, ha ha kids, this is your new teacher. Oh, oh my, oh, I don't know that. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, like, um, oh, there isn't a separation really be the family operates in public, right. Mm-hmm. And yes. the public is imagined in the family right? Mm-hmm. What are people going to think about my kid? Yeah. When people talk about, you know, their fears, it's a lot about the gaze of society, on, like, right? That then regulates how the family deals with disability internally, right? Um, mm-hmm. So part of why families delineate is because of the imagined public inside the family and all families exist in public to some degree, right? It's not, you you go out in the world. So I first kind of take apart that binary and that delineation as a regulatory mechanism, um, building a little on Susan Schweik's work um, on the ugly laws, which Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people being in public, which which, uh, still, kind of shape all of this um, and then look at my own 
way the way that operate in my own imaginary, both in my extended family and in my the family I've created. Um, and staring is like one symptom of that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you describe that so well. How you how you um, how you reverse that and how you yeah. use it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think in relineating the supposedly private narrative of the family space, we could change and challenge the public one and yeah. vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think for me, like thinking about how the public is operating in this fic this sort of myth that the family builds about itself and why. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a public imagined in this delineation of disability, right? So that was important. And then, you know, the disability justice piece is sort of instead of saying like I just want my disabled kid to be included or my family yes. to be included, you know, to to sort of get rid of that binary and celebrate and center disabled people as normal. Uh, it's it's so basic in a weird way. It's just like, what if this were normalized, <laughs> right? And part of why it isn't is because we think it's never happened in our families before until mm -hmm. we are diagnosed or someone in our family is diagnosed. So that's part of it. And, and thinking of this as a collective enterprise um, means, you know, valuing our disabled kin and our literal family. And I really fight against the idea that if you're queer or disabled, you don't have a right to yeah. biological and family and ancestry. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Like we need that. We need to own that. It might not be your nuclear family. It might be your extended lineage, but I think that's a human need. Um, and then calling, connecting that to this larger sense of kin, um, that you can only have if you are willing to identify as disabled as an identity and not just a medical exactly. problem or, or an impairment or a personal body mind difference that 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 is only you or your kid, right? If you yeah. see that as a an identity with positive dimensions, right, um, and challenges, but also with positive dimensions. Uh, and connect with other people would see it as collective. And this is where since in fact, this isn't my idea, this is really a disability justice idea. Um, that can be part of your kin. And I really wanna connect our sort of individual sense of family with this larger sense of kin and say queer people, disabled, we have a right to both and they shouldn't be separated. And uh, it was so moving to me. I was reading the other day with a friend of mine, uh, David Ambrose Jackson, who's an African-American gay man who uh, is very embedded in the community he grew up in. And he was talking about like he had sibling, he had cousins with Down syndrome. And he said, you know, there was all kinds of ableism, but they were never separated from the family. And he was like, yeah, one of them was my babysitter. Like he, he was like, yeah, you white people, man, you're crazy. Like this is crazy talk. This is, you know, not... So I think there are models um, that, that it is a particular inheritance of sort of post-industrial white mm -hmm. class suburbanized, you know, this kind of nuclear family that, that, that has a particular kind of violence in its delineation, I think. Not that it does, and I don't want to romanticize everyone else, but, but you know, that really struck me in a deep place, right? Um, he's about my age, same generation. And he was like, yeah, that would not happen in a working class Black family, actually. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I'm just saying these two things need to be connected, our larger sense of kinship with disabled people, right? And... Uh, finding our disability lineage in our own biological or adoptive or whatever family we have, whatever family yes. we come from, um, and, and not being denied that. Absolutely. And it's often so difficult to find that within our biological and extended families, that that connection to disability community is crucial to our survival. And I can say that, um, to, about my disability justice community, uh, which is, you know, one of the best things that I can, you know, I, I cannot even master without getting emotional, uh, just how much I 
I, I draw strength and, and inspiration, not inspiration, porn, um, uh, inspiration to, to live and, 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 and uh, commute and um, be in solidarity with and reciprocity and mutual aid and just understanding um, our, our crypt wisdom and our uh, care networks like Leah Lakshmi Pipsna Sarasinha um, so eloquently and so beautifully elaborates in, in all, all her works. And um, so, and that's been so important to me. And that, you know, came along with this whole idea of I was diagnosed very late in life uh, as an autistic person. And then finding that community was also such a like a saving more like I, I I don't know what I would do without the knowledge I have from my community because I have no knowledge that is positive from uh, the medical community regarding uh, anything that has to do with uh, autism because none of it recognizes me as autistic um, uh, or deals with any of my uh, challenges or any of the things that I would need to thrive as someone who is, quote, you know, who, who if I would have lived during, during uh, uh, the era, you know, at the, in the, um, contemporaneously with, with Hans Asperger, I would have been, you know, uh, obviously categorized and separated along the, the ones who were marked for, for living, but for, um, you know, experimentation and, 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 you know, all of these horrendous things. But today that means that I'm not considered to be part of my autistic kin. Um, so also, you know, demonized along with neurodiversity activism by uh, a lot of people who oppose it as being fake, um, as not being really autistic. So, right, it's and like if you don't fit this one model of autism, you have to fight to prove that you're autistic. And if you do, you have to fight to prove that you're human. You know, it's like either way, you're screwed. You know, like yes. either way, like this model really doesn't work for anybody as far as I can tell. Exactly. And that does not preclude a recognition that there is privilege in being a speaking autistic. Sure. And then also not being a black autistic because of what we've discussed, there's violent public spaces that make a black autistic non-speaking body minds a target of violence, brutality, and death. But then those two can be, can, can coexist. And, um, but it's obviously intricate. Um, and Jennifer, I have a last question for you. I know we don't have tons of time, but let's see if we can get it in there. Okay, so Jennifer, you build on feminist theory to discuss how capitalistic economy, a capitalistic economy of care undergirds a racialized, gendered, and class distribution of labor. We discussed this, right? So within this system, we also discussed that care, care work, care labor is often invisible, thus precarious, because it's often unremunerated. Now I want to connect that back to autism. So what I would like to ask is, could you please expand upon the precarious nature of care work in connection with this proliferating narratives of an autism diagnosis as seemingly unprecedented again, as a traumatic and a tra tragic event for families. Yeah, you know, the, I, I love how you're connecting things. Um, yes. I think this is part of this like crisis, trauma, epidemic narrative yeah. that instead of an ordinary part of human diversity, neurodiversity is posed as an epidemic crisis. And my daughter got diagnosed kind of at the height of that, or, you know, mm -hmm. that's nine, 2010. And when yeah. I would share that people would say, oh, it's a, it's a, is it like what you're eating or, you know, all this oh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, so instead of it, and, you know, it does in some way come down to, uh, thinking about uh, access instead of um, like pathology. So instead yeah. of focusing on how to make education and work accessible to diverse body minds, to value them, and 
uh, and create equitable systems of self-directed care. There's sort of this ableist panic, pathologizing, otherizing, delineating of autistic children. There's all this sort of gothic imagery and storytelling yes. by moms who do feel isolated and overwhelmed. I don't want to, you know, there are a mm-hmm. lot of challenges that my family has, like yes. challenges. Yes. I, you know, I don't get into like what she can and can't do, but um, there's, there's a lot, right. Um, uh-huh, but, uh-huh. but the solution isn't to delineate pathologize, hystericize. Um, but instead, you know, I think we need a sense of neurodiversity as part of human and familial lineage across generations, which would also help us have sort of a positive identity as a community. Um, instead it's like the single individual autism moms, tragic. Uh-huh crisis to solve alone dad mm-hmm. just is supposed to pay for it you see oh um, yeah yep. and so I think the you know um we have to sort of think about what that pathologizing you know tragic hystericist uh uh epidemic language right this viral imagery um you know that it it, it's an it's a discourse epidemic and some of looking back at the AIDS pandemic it's some of the same language uh was used to pathologize queer people um and instead think about you know what do people need for them to access care access education you know and that's going to be really different for different people. Um, but to work collectively, to see yourself as part of a community that has value, that has value. Uh, so I think that, you know, that crisis narrative is just so damaging. Um, and I, I really, I felt lost in it. I, I, I sort of tried to describe this. I, I didn't reject it. I just, it's like, I, I, it had no room for the joy and particularity of my daughter, you know, everything yeah. about her was collapsed into this narrative. And, yeah. um, yeah. and I was either like a refrigerator, either a bad mom and somehow yeah. I'd done the yeah. wrong thing, or I was like a victim of my child somehow, you know, just all of it just felt so like fun house mirror to me. <laughs> um, but that's all that there was. So I think reclaiming my disability lineage really helped me see us in a different way and um, find a community that values us. My daughter is going to a birthday party this Saturday with uh, her best friend who is also a non-speaking autistic letterboard user who she's known for almost like eight, nine years now, you know, and they're both 15. Um, they're gonna be in each other's lives, their whole lives, I'll bet, you know, like our families are connected, our kids are connected. Um, That's super important. So, you know, find your people. If you're a disabled kid, find other kids who share your kid's disability, find their families. Do, if there's no community, build it, you know, Build it. And, and it can be really small and simple, but if you do it over time and don't buy into these pathological narratives um you save yourself a lot of guilt and shame and like let go of all that um and figure what does my family need to live a, a good life right what do i need to change systemically but right here small local you know finding a community for yourself and your family yeah um, and you do such a beautiful um job at weaving in those um contradictions right really focusing on what is it in the system that is failing without you're resorting to a social model. You problematize the social model. You speak of uh, Shakespeare's work um, and you really, really, um, you know, invoke the the postmodern or psychosocial model to, to explain that our disabilities are embodied, that they're material, that they're concrete um that that you know uh you know there's not 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 amount of accommodations or changes that are gonna get rid of our embodied experiences but that those um 
that lack of accessibility, that lack of understanding of pathologizing narratives and, and fascist legacies do not make our embodied experiences any better. Um, so this whole idea of understanding that the system interacts with this, you know, the system, uh, you know, propagates this, this ideas of crisis so, so that it can interact with population control and, you know, all of these other ideas, but that there, that there, there aren't sufficient resources to support mothers, of course, who care for their uh, autistic children in terms of respite, in terms of actual beneficial therapies that are not other therapies, I'm not going to get into that, um, and, and all of these things, and it's especially so for, for, for Black mothers, for, for BIPOC mothers, um, and, and so it's not easy to just claim, and this is Anne, Anne McGuire's uh, uh, narrative in, in War and Autism, this whole idea of like, let's just blame the parent without looking at the system, so it's not one or the other. It is looking at how they both work. Um, and that's what you also do in, in your book so beautifully. How do these, these systems and these experiences within the family work together and unpacking them? Thank you. I'm so glad to, to have been uh, in conversation with you. This is just, it's been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing so much with, with me and with everybody else. And of course, for your fantastic, amazing, wonderful book, people, please read this because it's just, anyway, I've said it all, I think. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it means so much to me that, you know, that it means so much to me that, that this had value for you. It really does. Oh both emotionally and intellectually, you know, it, 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 it's just sort of a dream to engage. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, you're making me think about a million things too. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities. <laughs>